Hello and welcome to the People to People podcast. Which in Chichewa is Antiqua Antu. My name is Chimsy. And I'm Hazel. And together we are Chazel or Himsy. Which would you like to be? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I like any one of those. That's fair enough. <laughs> okay, today we are talking about people and principles and it is a meaty one. We said in the first episode that we weren't afraid to speak on any subject. We're not experts, but we are really listening to lots of different voices and there's some tricky stuff coming up in this episode. Before we dive in this week, a wee chat, we are holding a space for sensitive issues and we're aware that often justifiably there is anger and passion around that. Chimsy and I are humans, we make mistakes, and by all means call us out if you spot those. We are always learning and we are grateful for all points of view. But let's keep discourse respectful. Let's keep the discussion in the context in which it's made, with an open door, an open heart, and an open mind. And now just to make you aware, if you feel like it will be too difficult for you to listen to stories of vulnerable children and abortion today, please come back and listen on another day. Take care of yourself. We'll hear about the Kondanani orphanage in Malawi from the secretary of Kondanani UK, Jen Gebby. It's worth noting that because of those uh, during AIDS early on, they lost as many babies as they had. Like there was 160 children have died in their care as babies. Um, and the stories of that are grim because at that stage there's no treatment. We are talking about LGBT rights in Malawi. And I would like to say LGBTQIA+. But I fear we haven't found the voices that can knowledgeably speak for the wider community in Malawi that we know exists, but currently is so underground, it's difficult to find. So if this is you, welcome to our podcast. We would love to speak with you. Uh, we'll be talking about abortion rights in Malawi. Muti Khema, a board member of the Malawi-Scotland Partnership, has a lot to say on that. Essentially, they were trying to extend the reasons why a woman can choose to have an abortion. Um, I forget all the extra reasons, but one of them was rape and incest. It was tabled in parliament. A parliamentarian said, okay, the bill is here. We need to discuss it. From what I understand, they say the discussion didn't even last 10 minutes. And we'll hear about women's education and second marriages from women's rights campaigner, Fides Masoya. And when she gets married, she just has to get instructions from the husband, be it bad or good, she must be submissive. So it's again from that background where if a girl has been educated, she's able to negotiate a lot of things in the home. So my question at the start of this was, how do you stay true to your principles without imposing them on other people? So like when you're working in international partnerships, for example, Western partners don't want to impose the way that they do things. But when human rights are being violated, like in the examples of the treatment of homosexual people in Malawi, both in society and in the law, like you can't stand by that, right? No. Do I think you should impose your values on other people? No, it's not your place. But you can have a conversation and then take it from there. Educate the other person. This is what comedian Deliso Chaponda has to say about that. I, d I don't believe in that. I actually will impose my principles on other people, right? No, because I do think there's this lovely live and let live kind of idea. But that's not really practical when some people are being horrible to people and bullying people and being, uh, you know, racist or being misogynistic. So I actually think that if you see someone doing that which you think is wrong, 
you've got to express that you think it's wrong. Now, you could be wrong, and in a few years, you will realize that, oh, I was wrong, and they were right. But in the moment, I think part of it is whatever your principles are, you've got to fight for them. As long as we are arguing and discussing, we are moving towards truth, as opposed to if everybody's politely letting people have views which are different from theirs. It works really well if the two people coming in with different principles are both equal to begin with, but if one has a lot of power... Now, this is part of the problem. Now, that's like a bigger problem of society, but then hopefully there's someone else on the same power level as that person who can watch that person bludgeoning the other person with there and say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that, right? Again, it's like... um, Maybe I am not the person to be the principled counter to a president, right? But maybe the president has a vice president who can be the the person. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm not saying that all of us can fight all the battles, but hopefully there's always someone who could fight the battle. I, I also have got to realize, you know, I have I am lucky in that I am, you know, somewhat privileged. So I, I generally can fight all the fights I want to fight, right? I am not in a powerless situation. I'm very rarely in a powerless situation. So maybe I have a warped view of it because I'm like, I can always express my opinion, but there are people who can't express their opinion. So this brings us to a conversation about childcare institutions, and this is something it's really difficult to read about. So something you hear quite a lot about is how over half of the population in Malawi are under 18. So yeah, in Scotland, the median age is 41 and a half, and in Malawi, it's 16 and a half. And according to the latest National Plan of Action for Vulnerable Children, there are over 1.8 million vulnerable children in Malawi. And out of those children, almost one million have lost one or both their parents to AIDS. According to UNICEF, one-fifth of Malawian households cares for orphans and vulnerable children. And we wanted to include these figures here to give some context because we were talking about this before, Timsey, and I was saying, you know, all the good reasons why institutionalisation should be the absolute last resort. And you said something, do you remember? Just that orphanages in Malawi are a very different thing to in Scotland. And you can't really compare the situation or consider it in the same way. The context is just very different. And while work is being done to decrease the number of children cared for in orphanages and institutions, there are by necessity a large number of childcare institutions in Malawi. And we need to mention that Malawi's national policy on orphans and other vulnerable children does emphasise that children should grow up in a family environment and into the broader community and that institutionalisation should be the last resort. While work is being done to decrease the children cared for in orphanages, um, there is still a large number of childcare institutions in Malawi. And we're interested in this because of the big role that international partnerships play in supporting these institutions. And a good example of this is Kondinani Children's Village. Let's hear from Jane. Well, I'm the secretary of Kondinani UK and a frequent visitor and supporter of Kondinani Children's Village. So Kondinani Children's Village chief exec is called Annie Chinkwaza and has been dubbed the mother of Malawi by the Dutch media. We asked Jane to tell us the story of how it all came to be. At the time was when there were still a lot of people dying from AIDS and a fairly common and sad situation was of 
an elderly person coming to Annie where she was living in Blantyre at the time with a, a newborn baby in their hands and saying, my daughter has just died days after delivering this baby. I already had seven, ten, whatever, kids to look after. I cannot provide what this baby needs. Can you please help me? And handing across a newborn baby. Their social services were involved and they would identify who this child was related to and get the necessary permissions for them to be brought up at Kondanani. Um, so all the kids have come as babies. Uh, the last one was seven years ago and have not taken any children in since um, for all sorts of reasons, which is worth a good chat about. But Why if they don't take any babies anymore? Yeah, I was, uh, yeah I'm also very interested. I was going to ask you that. Unless that's a story you don't want to get into? No, no, no. It's it's uh, it's two things. One is a local situation, one was um, a global situation. So the locals, the very local situation was that the capacity of the home was they had at times 150, 160 children. But it's worth noting that because there was uh, during AIDS early on, they lost as many babies as they had. Like there was 160 children have died in their care as babies. Um, and the stories of that are grim because at that stage there's no treatment. But Annie Chiquazzo was getting older as well, and so she started doing this in her 50s. And then globally there was a big move away from putting kids in orphanages for a massive reasons, and some of them very sad to do with the abuse and that they were vulnerable to. Um, uh, and, yeah, some horrific stories there, but I won't, which I won't get into. But, yes, you, uh, UNICEF, for example, are basically saying do not have kids in their policy almost, I think. They might be putting it strongly, but the attitude is now, don't do it. And I've had people who've said to me, what? It's an orphanage? That's a crime against humanity. Whoa, okay. Can I tell you the story of our children and what? what's, you know, please don't jump to any conclusions. Yeah, we didn't jump in straight away at all. We really wanted to check things out and just see. My friend Penny, I made contact with her again through the marvellous realms of Facebook. You can find everybody on Facebook. And we'd lost contact. Um, they had uh, visited Kondanani and got really involved and became part of the UK charity. And they'd been really thinking and praying about finding other people who might be interested in helping in the UK. It took us a long time to think about it, my husband and I, and, and pray about it and talk to Penny and Andy. And then we got to meet Annie Chiquaza and then we arranged to go out to Kondanani. And it was after we visited that we said, yeah, count us in. We're, we're in it. And we're not just in it for a little while. We're in it for the long haul. These will be our extended family until we're gone. Yeah. So... <laughs> So some of the kids are now at university and I'm plotting and planning how to get them over here for post-grad studies and such. So, for example, one of the boys is so clever. Oh, my goodness. Um, Luke wants to be a neurosurgeon. And I've got no doubt he can do that. But he can, he can do, obviously, his medical degree in Malawi, but he can't do that specialisation. In Malawi, there's not a teaching program for that. So I'm constantly telling them, yeah, you must come to Scotland. We've got brilliant medical training programs. They've got such a soft landing spot here in Scotland as Malawians. 
if you're down south and you say, yes, the village, the village is in Malawi, they go, Mo what? Most people will never have heard of it. You say it to Scotland and they say, oh, yeah. Typically, my friends, kids, my kids, whatever, the school has projects, yeah? It's like you're an auntie of an extended family. Like you feel a part of this like huge, yeah. big global family with all these kids to look after in Malawi. Yeah, that's it, that's it. There's, um, and uh, yeah, the family of people who are su- supporting and praying for Kondanani is all over the world. Um, I'm Hazel and I'm Faye Bonnie, Scotland. And in this episode of the People to People podcast, in which we fearlessly explore the unique partnership between Scotland and Malawi, we are talking about principles. We spoke with Mutin Prema. In our earlier episode, People and Privilege, Muti described himself as a product of Scottish investment because he has worked on so many projects in partnership with Scotland. He is on the board of the Malawi and Scotland partnership and he has lived and studied in Scotland before. And one of the things we ended up chatting to him about was abortion rights in Malawi. Yeah. I think this is an interesting example to include because it's just something that is wrong to speak for all Scottish people and all Malawians. But in general, there seems to be a difference in people's personal principles as well as in the law. Yeah. But I think also recently, uh, young people in Malawi have been trying to make the bill pass on abortions in Malawi, which is a good start. Essentially, they were trying to extend the reasons why a woman can choose to have an abortion. We have some of the strictest laws against abortion in Malawi. It is acceptable only if the life of the baby will impact on the life of the mother. As in, the mom, the, there's a high probability the mother will die. I forget all the extra reasons, but one of them was rape and incest. It was tabled in parliament. A parliamentarian said, okay, the bill is here, we need to discuss it. From what I understand, they say the discussion didn't even last 10 minutes. No one wanted to discuss it. The, the ruling party, can we discuss this? No. The opposition, do you want to discuss this? No. No one wants to discuss it. And I think a lot of it is because the current president is is a, a pastor. He used to be a pastor. So um, even if they discuss it and it goes through parliament, he's not going to sign it. That's what most people would believe. They didn't even want to have the discussion. And that, that to me is extremely sad because termination of, of pregnancy is a, a very sensitive issue. It's a very controversial issue. And we all recognize that. But we... We don't solve it by just shelving it. We need to understand the facts. We need to hear all sides. We need to understand why this is being suggested. And then really have a discussion, a mature, open discussion. Because guess what? Not talking about termination of pregnancy doesn't stop people going out for to get an abortion. It doesn't. They're still doing it. And they're having unsafe ones and they're dying. I don't want people to die, <laughs> you know, needlessly. I think this is what we need to say in this episode. It's really not about the issues themselves. It's about how you handle those issues, how you really talk about them. So it's humble and gentle and good listening. (laughs) That's, I guess, what we're trying to do and just making spaces for those conversations to happen with your friends who have been brought up in a 
completely different way and see things completely differently to you. Yeah. And I think also with these conversations, it's really important, uh, yes, to listen, but also I think to come with an open mind. You can't come with your already, is it preconceived assumptions? And and think that you are going to learn anything new because I think what you do in that in those moments is you try to back up your point instead of listening to what the other person is saying. I do find that really difficult, especially when we're talking about something like abortion rights. I just kind of panic and I'm like, no, I have to help people to understand the <laughs> human rights yeah. here. And, you know. Mm-hmm. and uh, you know, as uh, like you said, you want to help people understand but it's also about you not not you just like you um understanding where the other person is coming from it's something that just takes practice i guess and yeah listening skills take practice we wanted to share a snippet of the conversation we had with gary bruff who moved from lindsay in scotland to mzuzu in malawi with his family in 2019 we are saving a conversation with the whole family for the final episode in this series which is in a couple of weeks but we've pulled out this section as it gives a really honest account of the challenges that come up in international partnerships so a lot of the work that we try and do at, at church and societies is funded by international donors so there are these calls for proposal, these kind of very formal processes that are involved. And and so that whole process, because it starts with the priorities of, of foreign governments who are funding these programs, their their ideals, their priorities are are in there from the beginning and it trickles down to the international NGOs and to the local NGOs. But then somewhere along the way, yeah, the understanding and the experience of of some of these topics is hugely different. So yeah, we, I mean, I've I've had time sitting in a in a room with with colleagues where we're we're looking at okay, this these projects are supposed to promote the rights of LGBTQ um, communities. They're supposed to work towards integration, and they're supposed to. And some of them are like are really strong and valid goals. But then you had to stop and take a look at and say, well what this is asking us to do as a local NGO is to go against what the law of Malawi says at the moment. And so the, there was the legal side, and then there was also, okay, we're, we're working within the faith space as well. Is is this a position that, that we're ready to take? And because funding for critical projects is mixed up with these issues, which are, which are not straightforward um, at a local level, it creates a complicated conversation and it's just a real shame that the, the conversation is not more transparent that it's kind of happening through these back channels of proposals and priorities and, and funding rather than yeah rather than more than more openly from government to government so gary mentioned the legality surrounding homosexuality in malawi so in malawi men can receive up to 14 years imprisonment for homosexual activity possibly with public whipping And it hasn't been enforced since 2012. But on the back of these conversations, I read this Human Rights Watch report and I was really shocked about the statements that it contained about the violence and the real threat and the persecution of the individuals in their testimonies. And the report has recommendations for the president, the parliament, the health sector and so on, but also for international partners. Hmm. Yeah, I think I read the same report as you and it was quite shocking to hear about people's experience. From research... 
I have seen, I have found out that in no African country prior to colonization do we see any prosecution of people because of their sexuality. Colonization and the spread of Christian attitudes meant that much of Africa lost its previous cultural attitudes towards sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, So when Malawi finally gained its independence in 1964, it also adopted these laws uh, that were forced during that time. Um, so one of these laws includes uh, a natural act. And you may be thinking, well, Timsy, you know, why weren't these rules changed after the British left? Well, if you listened to our People and Past episode, which is episode one, you'll know that for the next 30 years after that, Malawi was under the dictatorship rule of Dr. Hastings Kamuzubanda. There seems to be some human rights justice that needs to happen here. And I've been trying to do some research and looking to try and find the amazing Scottish initiatives that are working in this way and working with those communities to support them. And I have not found anything. And if it's out there and I'm just not seeing it, please get in touch because this is something that both Chimsy and I are really passionate about, something that we'd really like to see explored and brought to the fore. I think when two people love each other, they bring to their whole community extra love. (laughs) I genuinely totally understand and stand with you. Life really isn't that easy, isn't it? It's not just about me being able to love who I want to love. Like if it were that easy, yeah, it's simply not that easy. But also let's look at Scotland. When did Scotland legalize same-sex marriages? Is it not like 10 years, 10, 12 years ago? I looked it up. Civil partnerships were made legal in 2005 in Scotland and marriage for same-sex couples in 2014. And we need to be careful of blurring two things here, the legality of homosexuality and the legality of gay marriage. And actually, Scotland was much slower than other parts of the UK to fully legalise homosexuality among men. It was 1980, whereas it was 1967 in England and Wales, for example. And... It is worth saying that we are still striving to ensure that the LGBTQIA plus community in Scotland are not disadvantaged in our society, but it is illegal to discriminate against anyone based on their sexuality. I went to primary and secondary school in Malawi, and I remember when the first gay couple came out in public, it was was crazy. It's the case of Steve and Tuonge, the judge who sent them to prison said, you know, I will give you a scarring sentence so that the public be protected from people like you so that we're not tempted to emulate this horrendous example. And Malawi is not ready to see its sons getting married to its sons. I just think of all the children who would know that they were gay and listening to that and suppressing a part of themselves. It's really sad. Yeah, it, it, it genuinely breaks my heart. And have you seen this graph on the Afrobarometer? I have, yeah. And I found this really shocking. So they asked Malawians whether they would like to have homosexuals as neighbours. And 89% of people said they would strongly dislike that. That makes me really sad. Yeah, it is quite saddening, isn't it? Because... At the end of the day, who I choose to love or who another person chooses to love has nothing to do with you. At all. So, do you remember the Human Rights Watch report we read, Chimsy? I mentioned that there were these recommendations to international partnerships 
Well, that is why we're talking about this. Here they are. To increase financial and technical assistance to civil society organisations providing services to LGBT people who have suffered violence and discrimination on the basis of their sexual orientation and gender identity, and to specifically increase funding for community organising advocacy and direct services, legal aid, counselling, medical assistance and job training to lesbians, bisexual women, gay men and transgender people. Where is this happening? Who's doing this? I have been trying to find out and I am not seeing a surge of this kind of work from Scottish organisations. I wanted to say that there probably is small organisations doing this work. They're maybe just underground and we just don't know about them. I wonder if we have stumbled across an area in which there really isn't enough going on and there should be some a swell of support from Scotland in this area. This is my friend Chimsy. And here's my pal Hazel. And you're listening to the People to People podcast. Delving deep into the unique partnership between Scotland, where I'm from, and Malawi, where I'm from. We are talking about principles. But what would be the opposite, Chimsy? What would a Malawian come up against? Um, in the conversations that they might think, oh, I want to take issue with that. That's against my principles. Um, that in Scotland we wouldn't we wouldn't think about. Yeah, uh, I think I've said this to you, but I think it's about the fact that not a lot of people go to church here. Mm. Whereas in Malawi, I want to say everyone, but I think mm. majority of the population go to church every Sunday. We also spoke to Dr. Bob Scott, who volunteers in Malawi off his own back, and he's also a humanist celebrant here in Scotland. I also love the idea that you went out, because we always say, you know, this it, it's called people to people, and yeah. it, that can genuinely mean person to person, organisation to organisation, school to school, all the way through to government to government. But just the fact that just one individual decides... I can I can just do this. I don't need permission. I don't need anyone to say that. I can just go out to Malawi and yep. make my own contacts. Absolutely. And uh, please don't, mis- I don't want to misrepresent myself. I mean, I'm shameless about this. I get far more out of it than I put in. And that's not false modesty, nor is it real modesty. It's just reality. You know, I, I come away with my batteries charged and looking forward to my next trip. I think I just don't know what a humanist is, so maybe there'll be someone who is also so confused. I'm like, is there such thing in Malawi, or is that a very English thing? There is an association of secular humanists in in Malawi, are pioneers. I mean, they are ploughing a lone furrow, I have to say. Uh, You know better than anyone else, I guess, uh, anyone else here in this forum, anyway, Jimsy, of just how outlandish that kind of activity is, uh, not to have a religious belief, not to go to church, not to pray. I choose to live what I hope is a worthwhile life free from faith. I don't feel the need to seek to persuade other people to do likewise. So, so there isn't a confrontation. In Malawi, there is confrontation. There's my confrontation kind of in both ways. Ash um, is speaks out against uh, religious belief um, and is in turn um, 
to some extent, perhaps they're defending themselves against the onslaught that comes from established religions. So Bob mentioned Ash in Malawi. He's talking about the Malawi Association for Secular Humanism, who have been part of an amazing effort to combat witchcraft-related violence in Malawi, which is well worth looking more into, but we're going to have to save that for another series. Okay, so our final conversation on this episode is going to be with Fides Masoya. And this is a principle that is perhaps slightly less controversial than the other ones that we have to about in this episode. She's talking about the right of women for an education. Yeah, something that I am very on board for. Everyone should be. We're going to hear Fides tell us a little bit more about why that is really important in her experience. So I'm Mrs. Fidesz Msoya. I'm the Director of Education, Youth and Sports in Mberwa District Council, Mzimba District, Malawi. We asked Fidesz to tell us about her experience of her own education. Through further education, Kamuzu College, of education, Kamuzu Nursing College, which is a university that offers nursing. And then at that time, my parents could not accept me to go there. They were like, no, if you go to such a college, you will not get married because nurses do not get married. So then I decided to go into the primary education. But then I was not happy because I missed my university. So that's why I decided to like uplift myself. And then I did my diploma. I did my degree. I came out with a very good credits. And now I'm doing my master's in education. And... Um, in Malawi, of course, this time around, they are kind of diverting from that thinking. But mostly the thinking is like a girl is just a subject in the home. And when she gets married, she just has to get instructions from the husband, be it bad or good, she must be submissive. So it's again from that background where if a girl has been educated, she's able to negotiate a lot of things in the home. And uh, shortly, we have also had a lot of issues to do with the violence against girls, be it in the workplace or elsewhere. So if you educate a girl, definitely they will be able to negotiate and uh, fight for their rights because education is a basic human right. It's not only for boys, but it's also for girls. And I remember this other girl, she was the second wife. So we had to plead with her to come back from that marriage. Right now, it's a testimony to say she went through Mzuzu University, and now she's a pseudo school teacher, and she's fine. She's supporting herself. So, as often happens, Fides got cut off at one point during the call, and while we waited for her to reconnect, Jimsy and I picked up on something that she mentioned in passing about women being second wives. We were just having a discussion about being a second wife, or, (laughs) like, that seems somehow different from my experience and whether a woman can have two husbands? No. It's like, how does that sit with women's empowerment? All right. Um, Second wives have uh, a lot of problems. So uh, that's why I say that if somebody was educated, even when they deliberately wanted to be second wives, and if they have been abandoned at a certain point, they'll still have to sustain themselves. Because education is making them do whatever they, they have. To, once they're educated, they, they will either get employed or they will employ themselves. And then they'll be able to have the means to sustain the problem. So if you are, you are, you are able to sustain yourself, then you are fine. 
Even when that man went for good, it's fine. If a man decides to cling to a second wife, and then when you are educated, you are employed, you may not worry much because you may be able to sustain yourselves and the kids. Maybe issues of love and the like, maybe that's something different. But in terms of self-empowerment, that one is always there once you're educated. Okay, I think we're about ready to end this episode, but just one final note and let's make it a positive one. Let's hear about how children have become much more involved in the making of decisions that affect their lives. It's like we are working collaboratively and we are civic educating the communities on the importance of realizing the rights for the kids. And the most obvious one is that of right to education, right to health, right to be supported by the parents and so on and so forth. And at the same time, where there are also rights to, to have certain issues negotiated with their parents. Because previously where we're coming from and the culture that I've gone through myself, it's like kids cannot say anything. What the parents have said, it's final. But this time around, uh, families are kind of having a dialogue within their setup and they're able to discuss what is it's all about. I remember during my time, even when uh, I was getting married, you cannot even discuss it with your parents. But this time around, the children are uh, free to discuss about the, what they want to do or whether the type of marriage they are going into or the whole process of the marriage itself, they are able to discuss with their parents the choices they would like to make in education, the choices they like to make in, in their life. They are discussing with their parents. And we could even see that, you know, sometimes they, we have been neglecting the kids that are physically challenged. But this time around with a lot of talking, voicing out, you see that there are certain centers that have been set up for such children to have their rights held as, as well in education. They're being sent to school. Change. The, the same parents have really changed because they are saying, my child, go to school. Once you get educated, you assist yourself, you also assist us. So this time around, it's like marriage is becoming a bit second, and then we want our girls to get educated. That's, you see the mindset, the mindset change. Eh? Even when their child had a, 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 a baby outside wedlock and when she was still in school, they would say, we'll keep this little one. Can you go back to school? So there are readmission policies that are there. And the parents are very happy for that. So there's really been a lot of change in between. It's great to hear. Sounds good. Yes. Let's include some final thoughts in this episode. I was going to say, well, what, what have you learned? Have you learned anything? I'm always learning. But listening to these conversations in particular, I suppose on my mind is being particularly aware of how dangerous it is to generalise and to make assumptions and always holding in mind that despite the fact we strive towards equality and partnership, we have to recognize that there can be an imbalance of power. Also just humbly understanding that my principles result from my upbringing and my life experiences and respecting that someone else has come from their life experience, their faith, their community. And we have to really commit to that deep respect of each other. And then, there's also this essential and unavoidable part of all this, which is about universal human rights, which transcend cultural norms and local interpretations. I think that's about it. What about you? 
<laughs> I think I've I've learned a lot. Yeah, and I think also with these conversations, it's really important, uh, yes, to listen, but also I think to come with an open mind. You can't come with your already, is it preconceived assumptions? And yeah. and think that you are going to learn anything new because I think what you do in that in those moments is you try to back up your point instead of listening to what the other person is saying. Okay, it's time to pass the conversation over to you. We're putting our trust in you to handle the conversations that spark from this episode respectfully, openly and with thoughtfulness. You're welcome to disagree with us if you do. I hope you feel able to share that as part of a continued conversation, but that it's handled sensitively and respectfully people to people. It's about people and where we get to listen to one another and share ideas of how we can get from point A to point B by listening to one another, by having conversations and not just enforcing what we think is right onto the other person. In this episode, you heard from Deliso Chaponda, Muti Khlema, Jane Gebby, Gary Brow, Bob Scott and Fides Masoya. It was produced and presented by me, Chimsey Dory and Hazel Darwin Clements and was supported by the Scotland Malawi Partnership. And to end this episode, we are going to play a recording of some singing by the children in the Kondanani Children's Village. Mm-hmm.